Hi, and welcome to Recu Perfection. I'm your host, Rochelle Linnae, and I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Patricia Grigorovich. Patricia is such a delightful human and just a deep well of wisdom, so I feel really lucky to know her and to get to have her on the show today. Patricia moved to Minnesota from the Philippines at the age of seven and later moved to Arizona to pursue an undergrad degree in family studies and human development and a master's in counseling. She has worked as a high school counselor, a day treatment psychotherapist, an equity specialist, and a systemic family therapist. She is also a national seed project leader and is passionate about educational equity. Currently, Patricia lives in Minnesota with her husband and daughter. She's a longtime friend, and there is definitely a part two in the making, so stay tuned for that. But in this interview, the biggest part of our conversation is about building emotional resilience and why so many kids and adults are losing our resiliency. Patricia also shares about digging deep into her own identity as a Filipino-American, why it's important to learn about your ancestry, whether you are BIPOC or you are white, and how we can learn to listen to each other and walk through grief together. So with that, let's get to the show. Well, Patricia, thank you for being on the show today. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm, I'm just happy to see you. Ah, oh, it's been so long. Uh, yeah, Patricia and I go way back. Uh, gosh, how long have we known each other? You used to teach my know. little sister dance. I did. We were in dance class together. Yes. In high school. Mm-hmm. So like at least 10 years, probably. Yeah. I'd say between 10 and 15, I think. <laughs> Time gets blurry and we're kind of in a Somewhere. vortex right now. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'd love if you could just start with telling everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Man, that is such a broad question, especially <laughs> because like I'm currently going through this journey of identity. And when you do that, any question like that is so difficult because... I don't know what part of me you're asking about. Like Mm. I have so much cultural, like so much things happening with my cultural identity shift, but it all plays into like this question of who are you and like, what are you about? So I want to hear about it. That sounds tough question too. whatever you want to share. Um, let's see, I guess, um, my name is Patricia. And I consider myself to be a Minnesotan um, in terms of where I find my home and where I find myself to be a local. I am, however, Filipino-American, but that would be what I define myself secondhand, I guess. Um, I identify most with being Minnesotan. And then, um, but currently I'm kind of going through the shift of like actually understanding what it means to be a Filipino-American. Professionally, I am a school counselor, but my graduate program was both in rehab and mental health counseling, but also, but I picked school counseling to be my preferred. But in the past, oh, six years, in the past six years, I've been meddling in both school and clinical counseling. And this past summer, I actually finished all the hours I needed to get my clinical licensure but so far have made this conscious decision that that's not the area I want to pursue because of certain things that happened in my career where um, I would witness that 
professionals wouldn't be willing to make the culturally responsive choice because it would place their license on the line. And I wasn't sure if I'd be comfortable with that um, moving forward because mm -hmm. through my educational side, I've been fortunate enough to receive a lot of like restorative justice practices that are about community building and healing in community with others. And um, the clinical side doesn't really allow for that because there's this divide between like the practitioner or the professional has to have strong, like thick boundaries that's almost inhumane and like putting you up on a pedestal where your client is down here instead of when true healing happens, it has to be a lot more equal. And for those of you listening, I'm using my hands as like a <laughs> level thing because yeah. I talk with my hands. But let's see. Personally, I am a mother. Um, that's also a new journey. My kid's barely reaching two in a couple weeks here. Um, I am a sister and I am a wife and I identify myself as a woman. Um, yeah. And I'm in this flux also because spiritually I'm kind of like digging into realms that wouldn't be considered things that mesh. So I identify both as a Catholic, but I'm also like applying Ayurveda and yoga and like, and that digs into a lot of Hindi, Hindu um, deities. And so it's like kind of in this flux of really understanding who I am. So. Wow, it sounds like, you know, so many aspects of your identity right now are like, yeah, in this, this in moment shift. of figuring Transformation. Yeah. Ooh, transformation <laughs> is such a juicy word. <laughs> it is. And that's what it, it feels like. Um, there are days lately where I just feel like I'm reverberating with like bliss. And there are days, which is rare because I don't think I've ever felt that. Um, I'm I am someone that struggled with like constant depression for most of my life. Um, not officially diagnosed or anything because I just never have, but I know for a fact that I've suffered through a lot of major depressive disorder, um, but just found different ways to approach it. And I think that's where my search to define better how I wish to provide healing for others comes from is that knowing that you can achieve wellness in the non-traditional like routes or the non, okay, I should rephrase that in the non-Westernized ideals and the non-Westernized routes of healing. And so um, mm. I just kind of want to rephrase that because it's not really the traditional, it's more the Western colonized version of healing. <laughs> right. Because so. we are so like white centric with everything that we're like that's traditional and everything yeah. else is other <laughs> yeah and so I, I'm still working on like rephrasing and reframing some of that in my own head so I want to be mindful when I'm speaking to others that like yeah. there is a difference between the white centric healing and like what I see as healing so. yeah and I love that you're so willing to be vulnerable and share that you're going through all this because I think so often you know especially when you reach a certain point in the career it's like we, we want to have certainty um and I think this year has been a huge time of uncertainty for so many people and so many shifts are taking place and I think it's just causing us to go inward and re-examine 
for those of us who are willing. Um, and so I just, I'm appreciative that you're willing to like share about that because it's, it's hard to not know. And it's scary to not know in front of other people. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying to all of a sudden realize that everything I've built my identity on is because of my country being colonized. Like mm. the way that my parents raised me and the way that I chose to act and be for the two and a half decades of my life was all solely because of like Spanish colonization of the Philippines and then America becoming an American territory and all of that mixed that it's hard that it was actually learning about black and African history and also Native American and First Nation history that helped me realize like, wait a minute, like, am I just really colonized? Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of what spurred this transformation is like, also Beyonce's Black is King talking all about legacy and going back to your ancestral roots. Um, just kind of like, I, I think I mentioned this when we were off the record, but there was quite a bit of things that occurred that have led me to be where I'm at today. And I'm just, I feel very grateful and very blessed for that. So I think we need to understand that life is a process and figuring out our purpose or what brings us that bliss and what brings us that joy is really about understanding who we are. And yeah. And I'm curious, cause you said, you know, identifying as Filipino American has been fairly new for you. Is that taken place this year that you really dug into that identity more? It's like, I've understood what that meant more when I read um, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, and so just a little synopsis, I guess, is that it's the, it follows a character, two characters, but the character that resonated with me was an African immigrant to the U.S. And that really resonated with me about what it meant to be a Filipino American. And there's this concept that she uses where you can be American Filipino if the American side is stronger in you as an identity, or you can be Filipino American. And that's where we lose our sense of identity too, is when we just focus on saying like, I'm black American or I'm like Italian American. Well, which one do you actually see like in the forefront? And I think it's just super powerful to see your ethnic identity in that way. Um, this is tangential, but I think that's how whiteness is also perpetuated because white people don't realize that they're losing their ethnic identity by not being able to determine if they want to keep their like family's ethnic identity to continue when they talk about their themselves is like you don't hear as often anymore you hear it with like Irish American and Italian American but you don't necessarily hear it about other parts of <clears throat> the world like other parts of Europe and in a sense, like they lose that. Like I'm married to a man who's half Croatian, half Bulgarian. And he by choice, because we've talked about this, like just refers to himself as American, but he's doing that consciously. But how many of our 
other American compatriots like don't realize that they're losing a sense of their identity. Mm. Just accepting whiteness. Yeah. And, so, and I think that the comfort there for white people is I get to not have an identity because no one ever questions it. I'm just mm -hmm. part of the norm. And like, and, and I think that like for me, it just doesn't, I've, I've questioned it only in the context of being with other people who are black, indigenous, or like people of color. Otherwise, I don't, I don't question it when I'm just like around other white people. It's kind of and freaky. part of that. So with I'm going to do a little plug for one of my favorite organizations called the National Seed Project over at the University of Washington. Um, Peggy McIntosh is the author of The Invisible Knapsack, and she's just done a lot of work with this stuff as a white woman. And she's rather old now. I don't. <clears throat> but there's this concept of internalized oppression and internalized dominance and those two things kind of if they're not in a balance or if they exist in our life, um, we tend to treat ourselves in a negative light or treat others in a negative light. So um, depending on your cultural identity, if you're using internalized oppression, you're like either consciously or subconsciously choosing to harm yourself in a in a specific manner because you believe that you're not worthy or you're not deserving of that identity or of, or a, being part of this like cultural piece. And the opposite with internalized dominance is like um, believing that your cultural identity is above others, whether consciously or subconsciously and the, that impacts how you treat others. So when I think of the white friends that I do love, you being one of them. <laughs> um, I love you too. <laughs> When, when you're thinking of like, well, I've never had to think about it for you, is it a place where it's something you wish you had and you don't really realize that you are being oppressed by yourself with not allowing yourself to dig into that like ancestral history, because it's something that you also could use and deserve if it's something you wanted, or is it more of a from a perspective of dominance of like, well, I don't need to, so I'm not going mm. to look into it. And so those kinds of things have this dance, right? Yeah. Like, are you, is it internalized oppression or is it internalized dominance? That's, or is it neutral? Yeah. Like you really don't care. And, and for you, me, I think the reason I never wanted to look into it was because there's a lot of trauma in my family and there's abusers and it's like, I don't want to go back in the generations and discover, you know, really anything. I think it's been, like, interesting just coming from that stance because I think in, a, in that way of, you know, trauma, it's like, well, I don't, want to, <laughs> I don't want to find out about more abuse. But then also, I think, from the perspective of being white and knowing I have a lot of white... Um, whiteness that past the generations it it worries me to find out what darkness I would find as I go back and I learn the history and I don't want to sometimes learn about you know people in my family who have like outwardly oppressed uh people of color and black and indigenous people I think that is like a fear 
but it's a really it's a really good thing to to question because I don't think that I think that if there is like I've and I've felt this um, especially thinking with like indigenous cultures how like they call upon their ancestors in like rituals and that's what made me think about my ancestors is um, what is there and I do feel that if there's like a darker energy because of oppressive people and violence and things it's like I would want to clear that energy so that's something I've been thinking about but I don't <laughs> that's like I need to figure out what you know what that means and what that looks like <laughs> uh, but I think that's so beautiful that idea of going in and and doing that work of finding out you know where you're from because it's also rooted in science where the history of your ancestors whatever dark energy is in that is now carried on through generational trauma which has been proven in dna um like your stress reactors are like compounded in the historical trauma that you're your own ancestors experienced and so when you think of that um to have true healing at some point those shadows have to be let out yeah. experience and true mindfulness letting it wash over you um and accepting like how dark it is but at some point you know that it's time to move through and past it and that's where that like the meditation, the yoga, the Ayurveda really falls into place because it is about accepting Hakuna Matata, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but accepting the past as something that's there, what it, what was learned from it, but it's now something that will just pass on. And um, it actually applies a lot. What people don't realize is it applies a lot to Western, like, mental health clinical therapies because cognitive behavior therapy the first step is like identify the situation your thoughts feelings and how you behaved and it's like that in its own is mind is a mindfulness big technique um just depends on how fast you go through it but a big piece of that is like accepting your actual feeling for that moment and like maybe coming up with a mantra or a saying or whatever being like this is what i feel right now and that's real and that's raw and that's fine and it's good because I'm feeling it, but it won't be like this forever. And then allowing that to move through. Um, yeah. And what I hear in a lot of what you were saying, especially with um, thinking about oppression and your history and your ancestors is like, and with the mindfulness is taking the unconscious and making it conscious like it's kind of bringing to the surface and choosing to recognize what's really there mm -hmm. that's just kind of what came to mind yeah and I think that's what we as a society have been bred to um to kind of like what, what I see in society and pop culture right now is this concept of like the toxic positivity, the overwhelming sense of like the need for self-care, but what, or and like toxic choosing. positivity. Can you talk about that? Well, it's, it's like this, this thought that like, oh, if you're feeling very low or feeling down, the goal is to like, just be positive that 
being positive will get you out of that funk or whatever like too much I guess too much faking it till you make it kind of thing but what what people don't realize when they do that is you're you're just choosing the positive and choosing the positive but you're ignoring like you you end up with this invisible backpack of the stuff that you're choosing not to address and it becomes toxic because you ha- end up like a horse with blinders on um, focusing on just the positive things in life or choosing positivity that you don't realize that you're dragging behind you like a ton of dark potential dark energy that um, will make you feel a lot weaker because um, all of a sudden you get something stressful and you're no longer able to do that mindfulness technique of like, yeah, this is stressful. It's going to pass though. And I'll be fine. Instead. It's like, no, 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 no. I have to choose a positive thing. Like I'm not even going to look at it and I'm going to turn away. And then you get in this routine where that's all you do is you just choose positivity, choose positivity, choose positivity. And it's further stigmatized. Like you walk into Barnes and Noble and it's like, choose all your self-care. But what people don't see is it's all a ploy for like very, very much um, harmful coping skills, like unhealthy coping skills instead of healthy coping skills. because it becomes an avoidance tactic instead of like, a, okay, I'm just going to use this for this amount of time. And then I'm going to go back to functioning. Instead, it's being used as a distract, avoid. I don't need to worry about that because I'm focusing on my coloring book. And what we're <laughs> seeing is we're losing resiliency, right? We're losing, when you think of muscle structure, you build strength by ripping that muscle apart over and over again and letting it heal. Our souls are the same. You don't develop strength without that, that suffering, that tearing and healing and tearing and healing. Um, how far are you into the good place? <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> warning. Okay. Spoiler warning for anyone listening. If you but are watching Good Place, turn this off. <laughs> this part off. But um, that's what I absolutely loved about the last season was they brought that up. That's toxic positivity is the final season when they finally get into the good place and you see all those that have made it into the good place are just numb. And they're not, there's nothing for them. Their purpose is gone. They're just zombies. And we're doing that as humans. We're teaching children to be like that, to to be afraid of anxiety and to be afraid of worry and to be afraid of sadness, to be afraid. And, And I see that with people misunderstanding things like the movie Inside Out, where they don't understand that like, you have to have that balance of dark and light, that strength is built by suffering, which is a Viktor Frankl thing. And then, um, and then also you don't appreciate beauty and happiness if you haven't experienced the opposite. Like there, you just lack that perspective. I think this is so important. And I also think it's really hard to find the balance because I'm thinking about recently I went through kind of a depressive episode for a couple of weeks that was just really really down like I just really didn't want to do anything and I know a lot of people have been going through 
you know, depressive symptoms and like there's this feeling of, you know, I just don't want to do anything. And when we're in that space, um, without just trying to fake it, I know at least for the, the spot that I was in, it was like, how do I just do enough to just want to live you know um and I think when we're in a really low spot like what I thought to myself because I remember one day I was like all right well I should move my body I should eat food I should do these things but I don't want to and I was like okay well I don't feel like doing this so I'm not going to because I'm going to do the thing that feels good which is nothing nothing (laughs) but (laughs) that didn't actually have the end result of making me feel good and um like I know I I just finished Mindset by Carol Dweck and she was talking about people with growth mindset who even when they're feeling depressed will still do things that they know are gonna grow them Mm -hmm. even when they don't want to yeah um as opposed to people with the fixed mindset we're just like I'm not gonna do anything um when I'm depressed and so I, I'm just thinking of this on kind of the other side of this, like, go, 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 do, 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 yay, yay, yay. How do you find the balance of, like, doing some things and and choosing choosing to, I don't know, continue? <laughs> so it's, so this is where we're getting into that westernized medicine form of healing because, um there's a lot of skill-based therapies out there where it is very much like a calculated, like this is how you choose. But a lot of it you requires the individual to be able to rate themselves on an honest, I I mean that very clearly, you have to be able to rate yourself on an honest scale of one to 10, right? Not like there isn't a, oh, no, 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 I meant like 10 being the worst, like the most whatever your symptom is, whether it's anxiety, depression, or anger, 10 being the worst, and then one being like the best. There is no zero for mental health ratings, because if you were, you would probably be a Buddhist monk, like constantly in Nirvana, or you're (laughs) dead. There's no such thing as like zero. You can probably experience it, like if you're really good at meditating, and you like reach that like feeling of bliss, but it's pretty rare, right, for regular everyday people to experience (laughs) zero mental health. Um, So that shouldn't be the goal ever. It should always be between one and 10. But essentially, it's the coping skills should be rated to get you back to a functioning level, right? So when you're looking at your scale of one to 10, one to three is when we have our good days. So this would be like, when things just, when you just wake up and you just like, you're just good, like whatever that means. Um, the coping skills tied to that are called behavioral antidepressants. So there's things we do on a daily basis that if we didn't do it, our stress level might go up incrementally. So for some people, this is their cup of coffee. For some people, it's their shower. For some people, it's doing their makeup. For some people, like depending on whatever gives you that, that would be your behavioral antidepressant is the things that keep you at that one to three range. Um, The next one, four through seven, is where you really do like what's coping, coping skills. So when you're in the functional range of four to seven, that's kind of, that's where you feel the stress and you recognize that you're stressed out. 
but you're able to make decisions to like, you're able to function. It's your stress tolerance. Like you're able to function at four to seven coping skills here would be like, if you're a doodler during a staff meeting, um, or like if you're taking a class at school and you're a doodler, that's that range. Um, or putty, as I've recently found. Is putty, amazing. yes. Putty is fun. <laughs> I can I use have it beneath a, the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I have a like a $1 sparkle ball with like stuff in it, floating in it from Target. And like that's one because it's weighty and I like throw it back and forth under a desk. Um, this would be like some people exercise falls in this range and some people um like let's see what are some other examples like some people coloring book would be in this range right and some people like it's taking walks or taking an extra walk and um the big thing to note about this is that it really depends on you and what works for you because your coping skill might be my behavioral antidepressant i might need that a lot more than you so like for example for me dressing up nice and fancy is a level seven for me. If I'm feeling stressed out at a level seven, I'm going to make myself look as like hot and sexy as possible because <laughs> that's my coping skill for that. Like when I see myself in a mirror, I'm like, okay, I can tackle the day. So if I'm really high stress, like I can tell I'm about to break, I will dress nice and, and just kind of have that so that like I have that as a coping skill. So then we get into like DBT stuff. So the dialectical behavior therapy, when you're at eight to 10, this is like what's called distress tolerance skills. The stuff that you do, like in that couple of weeks that you're talking about where you're just like numb or just not feeling anything or not hearing anyone that's even encouraging you, the stuff that you have to do there are things that shock you out of your system completely. Otherwise it's not gonna be effective because the whole point of what we do is to get ourselves down to functioning to at least seven and below so we can become part of like our functioning self again. Mm. Um, so like examples of this would be like, take if you're really, really heated, taking a cold shower, these are the rapid ones, like sticking your head in a bowl of ice. I've heard some people use like going out in the cold in a Minnesota winter when you're fuming is another one. Um, but this is where that opposite action is really important. That faking it till you make it right is kind of moving that on. Um, and distress tolerance skills, like this is, those are the kinds of things that more like structured clinical settings are able and more equipped to help you figure out, like, this is what's really going to help you when you're in your lowest of low, um, because, they're a lot more intensive, right? It's a lot harder to check in with yourself of like, this is where usually it would, it for those with suicidal ideation, when you're in that range, you usually put the responsibility on a close friend or family member where you're like, you tell them you're at this range and then it's like a partnership or a friendship of like, right, let's shock you out of that by doing this or I'm gonna stay with you or so, eight to 10, you really think of this is the actual crisis like moment where you need those external supports. So for the very extremes, the coping skills for, or the distress tolerance actions for like stress level 10, for some people might be like calling the crisis line for some people it might be like, um, so this is where, why it's, if you have some of those more extreme 
like very big fluctu mood fluctuations, it's good to have professionals working with you because they'll be able to tell you like, no, your urge to want to go to sleep is not going to be good for this situation. But if they know you well enough, they can also tell you, no, if you're at a Nate, you should probably take a nap. Like it's that getting to know you piece because mm -hmm. the skills really depend on the individual. Um, and the thing that I've noticed too is because of this plug for self-care, I'm noticing people using distress tolerance skills to cope when they're like at a four. And that also leads to like the negative impact of like losing resiliency because like you've got people binge watching Netflix to distract them from functioning daily life stress. And that, that means that, that when you actually need that Netflix and the binge watching and the ice cream bucket, when, when you're at a real eight to 10 and you actually need it, it won't be as powerful anymore because you've been using it to tackle like a deep, uh, like a lower level stress. Mm -hmm. So then it loses its power when you actually need it. Um, when I was getting trained, I had a supervisor tell me this thing where whenever I tell a client to use a coping skill, I have to phrase it as if I'm giving them a prescription. So if I were to give a student putty, I needed to tell them how long I wanted them to use it for. And it had to be put away afterwards because like, if I didn't give them that time limit, they would use it and become distracted. And it was no longer helping them with the ADHD because it was perpetuating their symptom of like inattentiveness. And I was giving them permission to be inattentive instead. And so when you think of like, Oh my gosh, that resonates so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing we don't see when we have stores full of tangible coping skills and we're giving them to children who have ADHD, but yeah. the parents don't know you have to prescribe it. It's a prescription. Like you're going to get a fidget spinner, but I want you to use your timer. You can use it for three to five minutes, or you can use it when you're really stressed out. You can use it for 10 minutes, but after that, we have to put it away and you have to try again. We're not teaching kids that last bit of, or adults even to like, all right, you've used your coping skill. Let's try it again. Because yeah. you always have that ability as a, as a person to choose like, I'm going to try again. I'm still distracted and not thinking like you have the agency to be able to make the choice of like, I'm still very depressed. This isn't working. Um, I need to try something else. Yeah. Um, but the one thing the that I'm hearing is that we are so reluctant to want to feel anything negative at all that we're just trying to distract ourselves out of any bad feeling whatsoever therefore getting to that numb place anyways like that's the toxic positivity the good place effect <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. yeah and so and i can see why you're saying that's making our resilience go down mm -hmm. because we're not able to tolerate anything negative and we think that we shouldn't tolerate anything negative mm-hmm and I think that's what's extra hard about like this year for so many people, especially really, really privileged people, like myself included, who is just like, I'm not used to going through things where it's like 
it's a prolonged stress period, you know, and I can't just do whatever I want all the time, which sounds ridiculous to say, but it's like, literally, like, I'm just used to being able to pretty much do what I want, mm -hmm. buy what I want. And it's like, well, I think it's like any, and I've seen this with parents with kids too, like when I've nannied especially, and, and I've done this with students at times where it's like, they start to feel bad and we're like, no, 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 don't feel bad. I'm going to make you feel happy. And we immediately relieve that instead of letting them try to cope with it, like you were saying, like just learning a coping skill uh, and that's teaching them, like, and teaching us, like, I'm not supposed to be sad ever. And if I am, mm -hmm. something's wrong. You but maybe it's just it right normal. <laughs> And, and that's, that's, um, that's the disconnect is that because, um, westernized or colonized, colon, I can't even speak right now, colonized, <laughs> like that, the colonized version and like the westernized version of healing is about like, is I can't say it's about like, because like, that's so certain. And it's like me saying that I have a hundred percent certainty when I don't. Um, but it's like a lot of the patterns is about like that alleviating the stress. And, and what's tough is like, when you do not teach yourself or the people around you to experience that stress, you are not going to develop strength. And I will continue go, to go back to the physical body because I don't like hearing that like it's mental health and the physical health and it's mental health. And it's, it's like, no, it's meshed. Because if you get sick and you lay in bed for a week, what happens to your muscles, Rochelle? What happens? They just deteriorate. <laughs> yeah. So because you're not walking, like as simple as the stress that your body experiences walking down your like walking around your house or your apartment develops that resiliency for your physical body like and then people choose to exert so much like effort exercising to develop that resiliency for their physical body but when we think about resiliency for our soul and for our heart we choose not to develop that strength we we shy away from the stress and we shy away from the darkness because we've been taught again, like since childhood, oh, don't cry. Don't be sad. It's going to be okay. And it's like, it's okay to be sad because it's still going to be okay. And like, just accepting that I'm here for you. Like, we don't, we don't say that to, it's hard to say that to our friends that are breaking down. Like, Hey, you can be sad around me and I'm here for you regardless. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's what it is. And um, it's just not normal, right? We see someone crying like at work and we're like, oh, don't cry. It's going to be okay, honey. And it's like, you can still say it's going to be okay, but it's also good like to just not normalize that whole like stop the crying and right because um, it's affecting me. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually had a really good supervisor also that taught me to never pass Kleenex to someone to always have Kleenex available within arm's reach, <laughs> but to never 
physically be the one to hand the Kleenex over because the moment you do, the message that is sent is, I don't wanna see you crying because it makes me uncomfortable. Like, Mm. and that might not be your intention at all because it's like, I'm nurturing. I want to take care of you. But somewhere we got taught that taking care of someone means also stopping their emotion, right? And so again, it's about building that agency of like, this person will choose to dry their tears when they're ready. And um, I found that to be a very powerful, both therapeutic and as a school counselor rule is that I will not be the one to tell someone to stop crying. As simple as like, the Kleenex box will be within reach in my office forever, but I will not be the one to hand it to you. And it's interesting because the words that came to mind were collective mourning. Like I think we're in a, a period of time where if we zoom out just from the individual, it's like, we're going through a collective mourning in our country. So many people are sick and dying and so many people are living, you know, without housing right now and um, at risk of, you know, violence on a daily basis. And it feels like perhaps some of our inability to sit with the grief and sit with the violence and sit with the sadness and the pain is making us just completely look the other way and and really just want to be I mean like you said like fake happy you know that toxic positivity um but also I think we find a way to justify that I think especially right now white people not like myself included not wanting to sit with the grief of especially the black community an indigenous community right now and you know many communities of color are like it's it's first of all it's a privilege to be able to just be like I'm just not going to share in that grief because I'm I'm going to turn everything off today because I'm not experiencing it like I'm in my safe bubble can I pause you yeah and get I'm going to pause you and get deep so um I'm leaving a pause in case you want to edit this out (laughs) (laughs) but um so I have said this to several of just not even friends, but white people that I've encountered is that I hear this common message of I haven't experienced the grief of the BIPOC community. But when you talk about the trauma from your ancestors and the darkness that you're not really ready or willing to face yet, I would bet not that this is something to bet or gamble on, but I would bet that you have experienced the pain and suffering that the BIPOC community has. It might not be the same experience, but the level of pain and misery is probably equal that you would be able to empathize truly with that, that shared emotional. So one thing that is important to note is that Empathy can be taught through shared emotional experiences that a person can experience grief at a level seven. Like two people can experience grief at like a level seven out of 10, but one might've been because they moved away from the city that they loved. And the other one might've been because they became orphaned, but that doesn't change the fact that they both perceived it as grief at like a seven. 
And that's where we develop this shared emotional experience of and creating community and empathy is that, no, you don't know exactly that, but you know your own pain. And when you do that, it's you're able to speak for the pain of others, not their experiences, but for their emotions. Like you're able to be in that weightiness or the bliss or whatever emotion it is, you're able to be in that with that person. Um, not, and you don't need to have experienced that actual like And that's experience. why I think it's so important what you're saying is like, our, our inability or our decision really to not want to tolerate grief and our like like I don't want to see you cry I don't want to see you be sad I think that's why so many white people are turning away because you know we're like I don't want to be a part of that because it's too sad it's too much and I I don't want to be sad you know and like it's so possible for us like you're saying to share in that and and I don't even think it's an option you know if we're going to like grow our shared humanity and like actually move forward and like even be human ourselves because by by turning off your um empathy it's like you're turning off your humanity like I think Mm -hmm. that's the thing that makes you deeply human yeah but yeah, there's a lot here. <laughs> I didn't ask any of the questions I was going to ask. <laughs> well, do at least one. <laughs> do at least do one. Do one. Um, well, you know, I'm interested in this dark and light that you were talking about because I'm wondering now because you had mentioned before that like health and wellness require us to have a balance of the light and the dark, and. Um, I'm wondering if you're talking about the light being this positive and the dark being the negative or, Um, you know, can you talk more about that? Short answer, yes. (laughs) Short answer is yes. Um, It's about (laughs) understanding the spectrum of experiences that, um, and it's not just emotions and it's not just physical experience, but it's also like food and it's also weather and it's also like, everything as a whole like if you don't experience like even as um let me talk as basics like with artificial lighting and stuff there's people out there that like to have their houses just as dark as possible and get very little light very little sunshine the damage that it does to your body of not getting enough vitamin d is like very terrible because it weakens so much of your immune system um but then when we talk about like foods too. If you're only eating the heavy, heavy foods, what does it do to your digestive system? But if you're only eating the light foods, like what is it also doing to the, to your body? Like how does it impact your hair, nails, and skin? Um, but it also ties into, um, our emotions and the way I see it most playing out because of my career as a school counselor and having taken some stints as a therapist, um, I see it a lot with us choosing or teaching people to choose light or like um, just choosing like, so this is gonna sound really nerdy. I'm gonna get really nerdy here. There's this video game called Kingdom Hearts (laughs) and there's like this light and dark in this video game. And I, 
I feel so new to bring this up. I love this. I love that we're getting into video um, games. I'm for it. Like, um, but in this show, there's like the darkness like eats away at these the Disney princesses' souls. So Kingdom Hearts is a mix of Final Fantasy and Disney, and it was a collaboration, and like it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. But the whole premise of it is that like all these princesses are supposed to be all light bringers or whatever and like the main character Sora has to go save all the princesses and her, his best friend Kairi from the darkness right but then they find out the darkness is part of them the darkness is like and and like god I love this video game but wow. um it's this concept that like we all have both dark and light and some days it's easier to be to have more light in our bodies and our souls and some days we're more gravitated towards the darkness and that's oh that's good that's good because if you didn't have those like two to three weeks or whatever of extreme low then there's going to be beautiful days that you wouldn't have seen as beautiful because you would have um, been ignorant to like how high that brought you as your soul, like how how positive it made your soul and your being. And I think that's what I mean by that is that whether it's like actual light and dark, like don't keep yourself in darkness and don't keep yourself in too much light, but also like when we're talking about um, emotion, we get so wrapped up in stigmatizing sad, angry, and I'm usually have when I teach this, I usually have a feelings wheel and I point out all the all the words and stuff. But it's like we sh- we stigmatize all the negativity because we say like it, it, we we just make it sound terrible. And the thing is, is it is terrible, right? It is terrible when we're like the feelings are terrible and it feels so dark and it feels so endless and just lost sometimes and alone. But the thing is, is like without those days and without those experiences, how do we truly learn to value ourselves and our family and our friends of like, oh my goodness, thank goodness I have this person or thank goodness I have this craft or thank goodness I have this art or this profession. And there's just more meaning when we realize that like I am, I do have those days and that's total. that's my normal. That's yeah. who I am. And, and accepting that. And I mean, obviously disclaimer, if you're harming people in your dark days, you should probably seek like more specific help for that. Um, If you're physically harming yourself or others, there's different needs with different levels of this. But when we're just talking about depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms that are, that we're taught to be afraid of, there is a beauty to accepting that as part of who you are and knowing that you will have those days and there you will have other days. And there's this thing that I saw, I think it was a meme, but maybe it wasn't a meme, but I've started using it when I talk to people is that there are flowers out there that bloom every day and that's fine. 
but there's also flowers that take seven years before they make another bloom. Seriously. And so as humans, why are we expecting ourselves to perform and be perfect and bloom like 24 seven? Like we need to have a hibernation period. We need to have a low stagnant point. We need to have a plateau so that we can have that rise and fall. And, and that we need to respect ourselves and our bodies. Maybe we're a seven year bloom type of flower. Maybe I'm a one year, one bloom a year type of flower. And I, and that's good. Like that means that my bloom is going to be more important than, than like the daily bloom, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think the nice thing in that too, is it doesn't have to mean anything about you and it reminds me when you talk about the feeling is how many times I've said I feel good or I feel bad, but neither of those is a feeling. And now I'm thinking that if I were to say I feel good, it's like I I would hope that someone would stop me and say like, good isn't a feeling. And also like, so what are you really feeling? And also that doesn't, being happy doesn't, it's not necessarily good. And being sad or angry doesn't, Mm -hmm. mean that you feel bad and I think that's where we need to diversify our emotional language so that we Mm -hmm. don't make it mean anything about us you know and I I even you know I have or I tend towards anxiety uh whereas um you know I have a sibling who tends towards depression and I feel that do you feel or do you think that interplay is really I think (laughs) I think that um I you know our society really glorifies anxiety you know that constant productivity that constant like oh let's do let's create but for me and that's a lot of my productivity has come out of I have to do this and I don't I don't I didn't divulge that for the last like 14 years you know but it was like coming from a deeply anxious place of if I don't do this you know something really bad is gonna happen um whereas I don't think our our society glorifies you know depression it's like well you're not doing anything so capitalism isn't thriving because you're not working and you're not producing and you're not you know feeding into this capitalist structure and um and therefore anxiety good depression bad and it's like messed up it's (laughs) It's, it's terrible. Terrible. Yeah. And it's like, and I think then when you're feeling that depression or you're feeling sad, which is, I mean, obviously depressed isn't really a feeling. It can anyways, be. Is it? it is. It, okay. It's just, so when you, uh, I urge you after this to look at a feelings wheel and maybe when we go off the record, we'll walk through it together. But I, one thing I like to tell people, even friends is like, what does your, what does good mean? Like when we talk, like, how are you? Because I'll also hear like, what's, I'm feeling sad. And it's like, which kind of sad? Because if you look at the English mm-hmm. language, pick up a thesaurus, like there's so many other words that's actually more specific. And so from a school counseling perspective, I also aim to build literacy by talking about like, well, which, which vocab emotion word are you actually feeling, right? Like, mm. cause you can feel depressed, but depressed isn't the same as just sad and sadness is not depression and nervousness is not anxiety 
worry is like feeling worried like all of these words have just slightly different nuances just just a touch Ooh, i need to now i'm like i need to diverse i mean i love vocab i love language yeah. and i'm like oh i need to get into it's, my emotional it's fascinating <laughs> because i'm still working on that but even with yeah. happiness and joy and like there's just different words but I, I do think that when we're feeling sad or depressed um, or dejected, I don't know whatever other words, what word describes that kind of down feeling. Dejected was a good is one. Yes. Dejected. Okay. <laughs> we like it. As long as you approve. No, you have to approve. Um, it's not, it's your approval of your own word. <laughs> no, I know. I'm messing with you. Um, but I think that's what makes it worse is when we think that means something about us Mm -hmm. and that there's something wrong with us and that that's bad to feel that and then it gets worse Mm -hmm. and like you're saying it's like just it's easier said than done but definitely try to accept the feeling and it it doesn't mean anything about you you know there's nothing wrong with you like we're in a pandemic if you're sad of course you're sad yeah and the grief is real right now the grief is so real and we're so far removed from walking through grief when if we just walk through the grief together it would be better not great but it would be better (laughs) yeah i'm curious if you have any um any advice for how we can do that (laughs) Um, so it would be in, in restorative practices, the whole point of this is, so there's these things called circles and it's rooted in indigenous practices of like, when there was a conflict in the tribe, you'd sit in a circle and there would be a talking stick and this talking stick was respected and each person would get a turn and each person had a voice and, um, that would be a thing, but it would allow for discourse. It would allow for you to know that neighbor's perspective and everyone's perspective. So it allowed you to have time to communicate. Um, The issue that I see right now is self-censorship and also social media censorship and things like that, where we're choosing to either avoid the, the conflict or we're choosing to like ignore it or not use our own voice and not use um, and not speak our own truths because we, we fear that like communication back. Right. And when we don't have that discourse, that's when the community falls apart. And that's when we no longer see each other as neighbors, but we start, believing each other as enemies. Um, So even when I'm talking with people that are racist or that share drastically different political views than I do, I always come from a point of like, if I don't teach this person or share my story with this person, then they get the permission to continue thinking and living that way. Whereas if I Mm. share my voice, at some point they're gonna remember what I said or think about it. And that in itself is that catalyst for change. Um, We can't walk through the grief if we're not talking about it. And so big thing is like, 
speak, if you have a platform, speak about your experiences, but also welcome the feedback as dark as some things might be, but that also requires you to continue healing because some responses can get very like hostile sometimes. Um, but it's about learning self-love, but also respecting that you have a voice and um, it's through that communication. Like if we were to talk in community with each other and share like, this is how, what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling, um, it would be easier to cross that yeah. in community. And so my advice is to keep talking, but also to keep listening. It's when we start blocking and turning off people that we lose our resiliency again. Like, because really someone's words on social media, even if it's making your heart go up to your throat and you like are choking on your heart and you can't breathe anymore. Um, the fact of the matter is, is it's still just in the computer. And that's a way that you can develop like, right, my heart's going up, what coping skill do I need to like take a break from this? But if we just choose like I, in, a, in the moment, in the panic, in the, in the negative feelings, I don't need to deal with this click, then you lose that opportunity to develop that strength and resiliency. Obviously, disclaimer again, if, you're in a, if it's an abusive relationship, if it's going to cause you like physical harm, or like deep emotional harm, obviously, yes, the right answer is to delete, block, whatever as necessary for your own physical and mental safety. But if it's not to that level, what you're actually doing when you block and ignore these people is that you yourself are weakening your own resiliency, which um, BIPOC people don't get that luxury, right? We don't get the luxury because when we're walking the streets, it's there in our faces. Yes, we can do it online, but when I hear and see people of privilege being like, I don't need to listen to that. It's like, well, you do get that luxury because you don't get it thrown at your face when you're walking down the street. And so that's just kind of a perspective taking on that. Yeah. Like even as simple as like testing yourself and letting yourself read that negativity not all the time, but like just slow bursts of it will help develop that. Like, I don't deserve this. Like that self-talk of like, this person says this, I don't deserve this. And like, I don't believe what they're saying. It allows you to, to give yourself that love. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hearing stories, learning people's stories and learning to just let them be true. Mm-hmm. I think that's really wow. There's just so much wisdom. We need to we need to hang out more, dude. <laughs> yeah, I miss you a lot. <laughs> I miss you too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe Diana is already almost two. It's wild. It's very scary. Very weird. <laughs> I didn't even get to the um, parenting part of this. Rochelle. I know, and I'm thinking about it. Well, do you want to go a little longer? There's so much. Well. The, or we sure, could do a part I'm, two on parenting sometime. <laughs> I think part two would be good, but um, for parenting, because like it's very, it's 
very interesting. Just a little like pre preview prelude. <laughs> Thinking. <laughs> See, it's getting late. <laughs> Gonna sing a prelude <laughs> about parenting. <laughs> Please, I will definitely include oh that. Gosh. It's not going to get edited out. Oh, man. But a little tidbit is that, like, it's very, very difficult to be so mindful and aware of, like, emotional intelligence and watching my kid grow up, but also, like, making sure I allow her the space to be the kid. And um, it's tough because, like, I'm getting feedback from school that she's like really well behaved. She's like not a difficult kid. And like, she speaks really good English at this young of age. And it, I'm, it frightens me to no end because like, I don't want her, like she keeps hearing from not just me that she's perfect. And that's a terrifying mm -hmm. thing for me because that's not gonna develop resiliency at all. <laughs> so that's terrifying. Wow. Yeah. So that's the preview. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Patricia. Yeah, I had fun. I feel like I talked too much. <laughs> that was kind of the point. <laughs> that's true, that is the point of a podcast. That it? is totally the point. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. I've linked to the Americana book by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I hope I'm saying that right. As well as the Seed Project that Patricia mentioned in the episode if you want to check those out. If you are working on wrecking your own perfection and you want someone to help guide you through that process, I would love to work with you as your life coach. I've learned so much through working through and with my own perfectionism, and I know how it feels to have an overbearing inner critic and to be stuck in fear that holds you back from things you really want to do and have in life, whether it's a relationship or a career or a hobby. It all starts with your relationship with yourself. So if you're ready to start embracing your confidence and self-love, I have a three-month and a six-month coaching package available, and you can learn more and set up a free hour-long consult with me if you head over to wreckyourperfection.com. Thanks again so much for hanging out. I hope that you're being kind to yourselves, and I will see you back here for next week's episode. Until then, be well, fail big, and go wreck your perfection. <laughs>